Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I'm your host, Robert Scavone, Jr. Today, I'm joined by Leah Watson and Erica Cisneros-Kelly of the ACLU. They are here to discuss the ACLU's lawsuit brought on behalf of college professors and a college student in Florida. The complaint alleges that Florida's new Stop Woke Act is an unconstitutional viewpoint-based restriction on speech, which violates the First Amendment as applied against the states by the 14th Amendment. The complaint also alleges that the act violates the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment because it is unconstitutionally vague and that it violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause because it impermissibly targets black college professors and students by chilling and suppressing their speech about race and equality. Leah Watson is a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Racial Justice Program, where she leads investigations and litigation to challenge classroom censorship efforts, bias in policing, the criminalization of poverty, and racial disparities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Erica Cisneros-Kelly is the 2021 Marvin M. Karpatkin Fellow with the ACLU's Racial Justice Program. She focuses on issues related to economic justice, algorithmic bias, and inclusive education. Leah and Erica, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss this really important case. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So why don't we start with the basics? One of you, please explain the quote unquote stop woke act. What what was it, what what is it designed to do? Yeah, so um, I can start off with this. This is Erica. So the Stop Woke Act is was initially House Bill 7. It was originally known as the Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act. It prohibits instructors and students from expressing viewpoints that are disfavored by the Florida legislature. And this includes a range of topics specifically of interest are topics related to systemic racism and sexism. So we believe that the Stop Woke Act is a racially motivated censorship put through by the Florida legislature that was enacted to stifle widespread demands to discuss topics of racism that appeared after the nationwide protests that were provoked discussions about race and racism in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. I would just add that the Stop Woke Act, um, as Erica said, has also been known as the Individual Freedom Act or HB7. The way that the act operates is that it changes and expands the definition of discrimination in the, both the employment context and in the education context to include a number of concepts that have been deemed divisive by President Trump in the executive order 13950. And so now per Florida law, for the Stop Woke Act, certain discussions or certain topics espousing those is a discriminatory act that could subject the person or their organization to penalties. In the employment context, the Stop Woke Act prohibits employers from requiring their, their employees to attend trainings that discuss these concepts. In the education context, it prohibits 
teachers from espousing these concepts in classrooms. There's a note that they can discuss them, but it must be objective. But the, I think the harm of the Stop Woke Act occurs in a few different ways, but one, deeming these acts to be, or these discussions to be discriminatory, and then recognizing the chilling effect that that has, not just on these concepts, but on discussions of race or sex more broadly. That is an important point. There are multiple lawsuits on the issue right now in Florida. One is Honey Fund v. DeSantis, which was brought by employers. There is your lawsuit brought on behalf of educators and students in higher education. And there is a third. What is the third? There's actually four breaking news as from yesterday. That okay. Falls, the first case that was filed was Falls v. DeSantis. It was filed on the day that the Stop Woke Act was signed into law. And that's on behalf of, it was on behalf of K-12 students, higher ed, a higher ed professor and employer, mm-hmm. uh, and an employer. And then last night, Fire filed a lawsuit challenging the higher education provisions as well on behalf of a professor, a student, and a student organization in Florida. Although there are a number of different lawsuits, there are two different laws at issue, correct? There's there's the provision that your plaintiffs are challenging, but there's also the lawsuit that we or the law that we mentioned from the Honey Fund versus DeSantis case, and that is distinct to employers, correct? I would maybe characterize it a little bit differently. The Stop Woke Act has provisions that apply to the education to the K-12 higher education and employer provisions. The way the law operates is to modify the provisions, existing statutory provisions. And so in education, they are modifying education laws, the F-E-E-A. In the employer context, the Stop Woke Act modifies the civil rights statute. Right. The F-C-R-A. Yes. Right. So, but the language of the provisions that are at issue are identical, is that correct? They're largely identical. The concepts that are prohibited, the concepts that are deemed to be decisive are, de- are the same concepts in the employer and in the education context. The difference is that the employer provisions focus on required trainings right. and the em- education provisions are discussing the classroom instruction as well. And in your lawsuit, as you mentioned a moment ago, the Florida Education Equality Act, you said that it expands the definition of discrimination. And I'll quote from the the lead provision of that law. It's it's sub 4A, which says it shall constitute discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin or sex under this statute, under this section to subject any student or employee to training or instruction that espouses, promotes, advances, inculcates, or compels each student or employee to believe any of the following concepts. And then it enumerates a bunch of concepts like, it doesn't say this specifically, but things like critical race theory and things like that. So that's what you're talking about when you say it expands the definition of discrimination. Yes. Okay, so explain to me how that is a provision that expands the definition of discrimination. Ordinarily in the discrimination context, we are talking about discriminatory acts. 
that would impact, let's say, for in the employment context, that would impact an and a decision to employ someone or a decision to fire someone. There are generally acts that happen that that bring about the lawsuit. Here, we're not really talking about acts of discrimination. We're talking about speech. We're talking about things that are being said in the classroom. And ordinarily, speech is not going to be deemed a discriminatory act unless it's something that's so pervasive that it creates a hostile work environment. So is it fair to say that, that this is not really about acts of discrimination? This is about speech by the educators. The Stop Woke Act itself is not designed to address individual acts of racism or sexism. It only seeks to exclude discussion of these acts in classrooms or trainings. And so the discrimination here is a viewpoint-based discrimination. The law sanctions discussions of issues from one viewpoint only that the legislature favors and prohibits discussion of these viewpoints from another angle, even when they're, even when that other perspective is the perspective that is gen generally or widely accepted within the discipline. And so that discrimination here is a viewpoint-based discrimination. Give, give us an example of a situation where it would be something that's widely accepted in education. Erica, do you want to give an example? Yeah, I can give an example. So um, a few of our plaintiffs, they teach different um, graduate, undergraduate level courses. And so, for instance, um, one of our uh, plaintiffs, Dr. Thompson Dorsey, so she teaches graduate level courses in school law and also a critical race studies course. So in this course, under the Stop Woke Act, um, she fears that she wouldn't be able to hold discussions about the systemic nature of racism. Um, she also built in foundationally for students, they need to know about critical race theory, they need to know how it's used as a lens to analyze um, different issues within the world and within the legal system. So um, under the Stop Woke Act, discussions such as, that, such as that, she worries those could be prohibited. In the lawsuit with your plaintiffs, can you give us a flavor for what the individual plaintiffs are claiming that the harm is? Sure. So as Erica mentioned, the individual plaintiffs have identified a number of harms. We are representing seven higher education professors and one college student. And so the higher education professors have talked about and it through the lawsuit and publicly spoken about their concerns that they cannot teach to the standards of their discipline within the confines of the Stop Woke Act. Erica gave you an example from Dr. Thompson Dorsey. Another example would be Dr. Russell Allman, who teaches a statistics course. And so normally in his course, he might teach students how to evaluate research methodologies to determine whether or not a study is valid or to assess the validity of the study. So they might look at how the study is structured. They might look at the number of participants and any number of factors. And if they conclude that the methodology was valid, then they would conclude that the study is valid. So in the context of educational statistics, what Professor Allman is teaching, if he is teaching his students about colorblind approaches and whether or not colorblind approaches are a reasonable way 
to educate students. And he teaches them, this is what he normally does. He walks them through studies. They evaluate the methodologies. They, they conduct their statistical analysis. And if he concludes that the study supports the conclusion that colorblind approaches do not work in education, he can't teach that under the Stop Woke Act. However, if he concludes that co colorblind approaches are not racist, then he could say that. So there is just very clear restrictions on our plaintiffs, our higher education instructors and educators on what they can or cannot say. Another example would be from Dr. Shelley Park, who has explained that based on her years, uh, decades as a feminist philosopher, you know, for 30 to 40 years, she has been trained to understand and identify based on review of research, the ways that op the notion of objectivity or the notion of neutrality tends to reflect a Eurocentric male patriarchal view. That's just a starting basis for the course. And so then her students are looking to apply that as a framework to analyze society. And how can she explain this framework that has been widely accepted in her discipline for 30 to 40 years at least to her students, you know, she has an obligation not only to introduce information to students, but also to let them know where there is academic consensus on issues and where there's an active academic debate. And that's something that's difficult to do within the confines of the law. We also represent Johanna Dawkin, who is a college senior at USF and Johanna has taken classes centered around race in the past. She's currently enrolled in two courses. Her concern is that she's not going to learn the full scope of information that she would have learned had she taken the class before the Stockwell Act was passed. So there are lots of concerns about being able to present information. And I think, honestly, there's also a culture of fear that even when instructors are presenting information that doesn't actually conflict with the law, because of the uncertainty of what it means to present information objectively and without endorsement, they're concerned about the appearance that they might violate the law and being subjected to the complaint process, which would include, you know, disciplinary action and or termination. And so the, the risks are very high here and it has a more broad chilling effect beyond just the eight prohibited concepts that are enumerated in the law because when professors don't know where the line is, they avoid these topics altogether, chilling the uh, provision of protected speech. Okay, well, that, with respect to the consequences, what are, you, you mentioned you know, the possibility of being sanctioned in some way by the higher education institution. What are some of the other penalties that are at play in the statute? The largest penalty is that colleges and universities can be stripped of their state funding. Okay. And so as a, as a result of that, you know, the, these institutions would not be able to continue without state funding. Okay. Therefore, and the, the Board of Governors regulations requires them to investigate and also remedy violations of the law, including disciplinary action against professors or educators and termination. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the different causes of action that have been brought. Before we outline each one real quickly, 
explain to listeners, because some people may be listening to this, particularly non-lawyers, and they may, may be saying to themselves, well, what's the legal harm here? I mean, these teachers, these professors are still able to teach. What's the harm in limiting them or asking them to avoid certain areas that the legislature has deemed inappropriate? What's the legal harm? I would say the most basic legal harm is that it's a violation of their constitutional rights. For the educators, they have a right to academic freedom. This has been widely, widely recognized repeatedly by the Supreme Court, a right that basically protects them when and gives them the right to teach what they want to teach, how they want to teach it. The Supreme Court has said over and over again that it's very important in the higher ed context to protect the information, the open discourse of information. The Stop Woke Act is a viewpoint-based restriction on this right that educators have. It restricts them, confines them to one view and not another. Even when they cannot teach to the standard of their discipline, some of our plaintiffs cannot teach it. They cannot present their information without conflicting with the divisive concepts that are outlined in the Stop Woke Act. And so here, the Stop Woke Act, just listen to the name of it, Stop Woke. Woke yeah. as a term that is intended to exclude speech about social and racial justice that has yeah. been historically it's, it's, used by Black people. It's it, pretty, he, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's, it's pretty ironic that, that the name of the act essentially tells the story that this is really about stopping speech and it's about stopping speech that the legislature doesn't like. So it's a little bit, I don't mean to laugh about it. It's a very serious topic, but it's, it's kind of comical that we're talking about an act or at least the defendant. We don't know what the defendant's going to say in this case because the defendants have not filed a response of pleading as of yet. But we can get an idea of what their response is going to be, because if they want to be consistent, their response is probably going to have to be something similar to, a, to, the, uh, to the Honey Fund case, because they're, they're arguing the same provisions and they're arguing against the same counts. You know, in that, case, in, that count, in that case, there were counts for viewpoint discrimination, for vagueness and for overbreath. You don't have an overbreath challenge in your, in your particular complaint, but you've got the viewpoint and the vagueness arguments. So it's going to be hard for the government in this case to make arguments or, you know, they could make additional arguments, but I, it's going to be hard for them to walk away what they said in that case. So, so you've laid out the, the viewpoint discrimination claim. Explain just quickly, why is viewpoint discrimination a problem from a constitutional perspective? There are multiple arguments. There is the viewpoint-based restriction that under the First Amendment on behalf of students and educators, that's one claim. The vagueness claim that educators don't know where, mm -hmm. what information is prohibited or permissible is under the 14th Amendment. Um, and finally, the team brought a claim, a racially discriminatory claim under the 14th Amendment, which basically looks at a number of factors and concludes that this law, the Stop Woke Act, was passed to target Black educators and Black students. So for racially discriminatory purposes. With respect to the vagueness claim, you, you, you've you gone through that a little bit, but for, for lay people to understand, how can an act be void for vagueness? How can it be unconstitutional for vagueness? The act can be unconstitutional if it fails to provide people of ordinary intelligence a reasonable opportunity to understand what conduct it prohibits. That's one reason. 
A second independent reason is if it authorizes or even encourages arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Okay, and the, the vagueness claim here is that some of the provisions, some of the wording in the, in, the, in the provisions of the law are so vague that instructors are not going to know what is actually prohibited. That's correct. That's one argument. We also argue that because the language around discussion of concepts that they can be introduced objectively, but without endorsement is vague. It means that all of the concepts are vague as well because instruct educators can't understand how that applies to any of these concepts. And then finally, we flag the potential for arbitrary um, and discriminatory enforcement against black educators who are disproportionately teaching courses that will be impacted by the law. Okay, now let's just briefly talk about the equal protection claim. Help me understand how there's an equal protection claim in this case when the law applies to black and white professors alike and black and white students alike. So we believe that these restrictions are particularly invidious because they target instructors and students that take these classes more often and teach these classes more often. So a lot of times black instructors may teach different types of courses, but they are more likely to incorporate these type of topics that relate to racism and sexism into their courses. Yeah, I think Erica is explaining that the decision here, the limitations here are going to bear more heavily on black educators than white educators. That's one of the Arlington Heights factors that we eliminate, illuminate. But the other ones have to do with the historical background that went into the law. And we looked at the legislative history. The complaint discusses, brings in comments from Governor DeSantis, Lieutenant Governor Nunes, a number of legislators talking about what they want to exclude in the course in from classrooms and from workplaces, the historical background of racism and the treatment of racism within Florida, the sequence of events leading up to the Stop Woke Act, departures from the normal procedural sequences and substantive departures as well. And then, you know, as I mentioned, contemporaneous statements from legislatures. There's this claim, there are a lot of factors we in the outline, address these factors individually to talk about the best, you know, some of the evidence, the best evidence supporting the equal protection claim. So Erica, why don't you explain a little bit about why this law really matters? Like in the big picture, what are we dealing with here? Yeah, so I think why this, you know, law matters and why they, laws like this should be challenged are, um, I think they, you know, threaten race and gender-based speech. And I think over the years, um, you know, a lot of people have worked to get some of these topics um, in the forefront and they've, you know, dedicated their careers and, I think, you know, for me personally, growing up as a Latina woman and being able to be exposed to these topics in um, higher education and my undergraduate and later in my graduate degrees, I think it fundamentally changed, you know, um, my view of the world. And I, I think that it would be detrimental to a lot of students who grow up without their viewpoints in education um, if these topics were banned and they weren't ever exposed to it. I think it's great to be able to have 
your view of the world. Um, you know, for people to say that you are only experiencing this, a lot of other people are experiencing instances of racism, and this is what it means for all of us as a society to come together and to debate it and to discuss it. And I think that the, if we're going to get to a point, um, you know, where people should be debating and discussing, and we should hear all sides, and I think that's that's why this matters. Yeah, you know, this is like if, if you can't burn the books, let's just stop the way they teach. You know, we've all been to law school and, you know, people who are listening to this have been to law school or undergraduate. And, you know, one of the things that I think was so valuable about about higher education was the fact that you got to hear different viewpoints and you got to hear different methods of analysis. And, you know, that's how you learn. That's how you figure out how, you know, how you want to see the world. It's how you figure out whether or not what you've learned is accurate. And it's important for people to realize that this is not a partisan issue. You know, this this could work the other way around. You could have a state that's really blue and wants to, you know, enact legislation that would try to prohibit things that Democrats disfavor. So it's important for people to understand that this is not a political or a partisan issue. Since the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, the racial reckoning that occurred in 2020, there has been an increase and demand and interest around culturally responsive teaching, um, culturally relevant teaching. And in response to this progress towards racial justice, the discussion about racial justice, this classroom censorship movement has emerged in backlash, honestly. And we've seen over 200 bills introduced around the country in over 43 states, basically no, no place is immune. They started in the K-12 context, but we're seeing more and more um, bills also addressing instruction and reaching the higher education classroom as well. And so this is part of a larger movement that we are challenging. The bottom line of this litigation and our work around the country is that all educators and students have a right to learn and teach free from censorship or discrimination. I think that's a, a great way to sum up what we've talked about today, Leah. So Leah and Erica, thank you very, very much for joining me today. It's It's been a pleasure. And um, um, of course, we'll be following everything that happens in this and the, and the Honey Fund litigations and the other ones we've talked today. And we'll see we'll see what the 11th Circuit has to say. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Thanks again to Leah and Erica for joining me today. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and tune in to future episodes. If you don't like what you've heard today, shoot me an email. I'm always interested in hearing from listeners. You can reach me at summarilypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions for editing and producing this podcast. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions, LLC. Thanks again for listening. And remember, folks, case law is one word.